Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. God bless you. God bless Israel. I always God pick the wrong you. one. I just have to God delete that out of the feed. <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> All right. This is a good start. Hi, guys. I was really worried about what, how I was going to intro this episode, and that took care of it for me. <laughs> All you need to do is fuck up. Um, welcome back. It's Barstool Politics. I am your host, Nick McGuire, uh, joined by Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College uh, and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi, guys. Hey. And then we also have our regular, I guess, one of our other super guests, yeah. in addition to, uh, to Suzanne. We have uh, Professor Tom Kavanaugh from North Central College as well. Great to be our, back. Yeah. To our be senior back. legal analyst. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I got titles. I like it. Oh. Um, before we start, uh, if you like the podcast, uh, follow us on Facebook at Barstool Politics, Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L. Um, beers we try, you can find on the Untapped app on iOS and Android. Uh, the podcast itself, uh, download on SoundCloud uh, or iTunes. You can also find it on stitcher and google play music and spreaker and all other major podcasting platforms so go do that and tell other people who are listening to things to listen to this thing because it's a good thing you did a good job on that one thanks i appreciate that (laughs) i'm getting better at it yes (laughs) um how's how's cohen doing he's not i'm assuming not well he's he's a little stressed he's a little stressed yeah yeah all right let's introduce our first topic will cohen flip on trump so over the weekend president trump lashed out at a new york times story speculating on whether trump's longtime personal attorney michael cohen would flip on the president mr cohen appears to be in some pretty serious legal trouble after fbi agents raided his office and hotel room last week cohen has previously said he would take a bullet for trump phil would you take a bullet for me no. Okay. So I <laughs> I'd be I'd be really sad when you got shot. So Cohen says he'd take a bullet, but uh, the article quoted a number of close associates, including Roger Stone, who suggested that Cohen may not be as reliable as Trump thinks. The story seems to have rattled Trump, who proceeded to post twenty five random and bizarre tweets over the weekend. He attacked the reporter and called one of the sources a quote drunk, drugged up loser who hates Michael. On the point of whether Cohen would flip. <laughs> The president said most people will flip if the government lets them out of trouble, even if it means lying or making up stories. Sorry, I don't see Michael doing this despite the horrible witch hunt and dishonest media. Now, it's entirely possible that Trump has done absolutely nothing wrong or illegal. But boy, does his tweeting make him sound like he has. Now, we're lucky to have Tom's fine legal mind to walk us through all these issues. Uh, To start, Tom, in what year do they teach you Trump's Twitter defense? (laughs) (laughs) They worked. Uh, it was in law school so long ago. Twitter didn't exist, my man. <laughs> Cell phones didn't exist when I was in law school. What a great time! Mm. <clears throat> so maybe to start things off, are we? Do we feel? 
I don't know. I, I, you get the sense that Trump is more worried about Cohen now than he may have been, wor- or that he's worried about the Mueller investigation. And mm-hmm. Is that is that a fair? Should he be? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, partly because we're over a year into the Mueller investigation, and at this point, all of the indictments have been process indictments that haven't suggested any real substance. That doesn't mean there isn't any to come. But uh, as I thought about this Cohen thing. There's two ways to get this information. One is a subpoena. One is a warrant. A subpoena would have meant that Cohen could go through his material, provide the government with what it asked for. You don't need a judge. You don't have to demonstrate probable cause. You ask for it. You do what was done this time, get a warrant, uh, and I'll come back to how hard that is in a second. Uh, When you're afraid somebody's going to destroy evidence uh, or that evidence is going to be uh, lost permanently, So the seriousness of this, uh, it seems to me, is evident from the way the the information was sought. Mm -hmm. Uh, Moreover, to ask a judge to allow the FBI to seize an incredible range of material, hard drives, paper documents, uh, from two different places, suggests the kind of seriousness that uh, is it's difficult to imagine it being more. Uh, this is a very big deal. And, and yes, I think the president should be terrified if there's some good reason. Mm-hmm. And, and I still have enough trust in the federal, uh, federal judiciary that no one's signing off on a warrant unless there's genuine probable cause. Because this, like, oh, go ahead, Phil. Why are you so naive, so, so we're all rendered speechless. By- <laughs> My question um, to you, one of the questions that's come up, in, and I, I've heard other people raise this question, but the thing that I keep coming back around to is, can an attorney flip on their client? So this question about, you know, Cohen flipping, you know, whether he would flip and, and testify against Trump or turn on Trump or whatever. What are the limits on that? I, I mean, I assume that he could as long as it wasn't related to issues that were discussed in terms of the attorney-client relationship? How does that, how does that play into this? Yeah, it, it might even not just be that. Um, the, the crime fraud exception allows uh, the attorney-client privilege to be ignored. And the crime fraud uh, exception essentially says where a lawyer and a client are engaged in a criminal enterprise between them, uh, there is no privilege, and both can be charged with the crime. Uh, Now, we should come back to the question of what the crime here is, because if it's Federal Elections Commission stuff, those are usually not prosecuted as crimes. But so let's assume there's a crime for a moment. Um, There is no attorney-client privilege. Uh, The documents could be used in evidence to prosecute one or both of them, I presume both. Uh, And both would, like any other criminal defendant, be in a position to testify against the other. I suppose that uh, the client would be in a position to file a lawsuit, a civil lawsuit, uh, against uh, the attorney, uh, alleging that uh, because you have violated the agency relationship duties, you owe him money. But of course, the damage of Cohen flipping would be so substantial uh, that some subsequent civil suit saying from Donald Trump, I want money damages from Cohen because he flipped on me would be almost meaningless. So, to, so uh, Phil, the answer to your question is yes, you can flip on your client. But it, the where, only... the, where there is a crime alleged 
and there is not attorney-client privilege. So, but does that only apply if the attorney is also involved in the carrying out of that crime? Because if you're my lawyer and I commit a crime, yeah. you can't flip on me just because I've committed a crime, right? So you That's would right. have to be involved as my attorney in absolutely the actual right. carrying out of that crime. You'd, absolutely, categorically, okay. yes to that. Uh, or lawyers would regularly say, here I, right. Joseph Mengele is my client, and, and so awful is he that I think uh, what he has done trumps the attorney-client privilege. Um, so there's no circumstances under which if the privilege attaches, uh, none that I can think of, that a lawyer could flip on a client. We have this great case in Illinois involving two attorneys uh, who know their client did a crime for which somebody else was sent to prison and spent 26 years there because he would not waive the privilege. And these lawyers took the position that to tell uh, was unethical. Uh, so no, if there's the privilege, you cannot flip. How do you, How do you go? Go. <laughs> Let me get into. I'm film. dominating this conversation, but I have so many questions. Well, I, 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 I what? No. no. <laughs> go How ahead. You, let me follow up on this real yeah. quick because I don't know if you're asking. How do you sort that out? Yes, because that's what in I was my mind, ask. you have to like to say. You know, if if in our legal system, if you're innocent until proven guilty, how do you if if what the lawyer says is part of the, you know, establishing that a crime occurred? It, it seems like a chicken and egg situation in some ways. Right. So you're saying that if they committed a crime together, then attorney client privilege doesn't apply. But it seems like they're using they're foregoing attorney client privilege to establish that a crime was committed in this case. So that that seems I don't know. I, I wouldn't want to have to try to un, untangle all of that. Yeah, it's very complicated. Uh, the Department of Justice handbook describes how this is done. So you've probably seen in the news that uh, before the request for a special master to review the documents, the, the first request was um, to allow Cohen to look at them himself. Uh, Judge Wood denied that, uh, but it turns out that uh, there's going to be a taint team or a clean team. They should go with clean. First. They should go with clean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. <laughs> We're looking to spice up the podcast, evidently. Um, but but to, your, to your question, Phil, the idea is that there will be people that review these documents before those that might prosecute based on them get them so that they can separate the protected from the unprotected and so that they can make some initial judgments about whether or not there is a credible belief that a crime took place. Um, moreover, there has to be uh, independent corroborating evidence that a crime took place outside of the attorney-client privileged documents. Mm -hmm. Or as you might imagine, the FBI could just simply start raiding lawyers' offices, yeah. trying to find crimes in what would otherwise be privileged <clears throat> material. So it sounds to me like the chronology is that Mueller comes across some information that suggests to him uh, a crime has taken place independent of Russia. He refers to the Southern District of New York. Those lawyers make a judgment that a subpoena is the wrong thing to use because I assume they think Cohen will destroy documents or throw them away. Um, and so they persuade a judge that a warrant should be issued uh, based on a probable cause standard that a crime has taken place and that that crime would have to involve the lawyer himself. Uh, it doesn't, incidentally, necessarily have to involve the client, but the lawyer has to be uh, engaged in criminal behavior. 
does the fact that Cohen is not the traditional type of lawyer, I mean, they, they, he's a lawyer, but they refer to him as yeah. the fixer. Mm-hmm. And the fixer seems outside of your more conventional lawyerly duties. Does yeah. that make the attorney-client privilege different because the conduct is not a conventional? I, I think it doesn't. And I think the media misunderstands the privilege when it suggests that because he only has three clients and isn't doing a lot of lawyering mm-hmm. is you know, sort of the phrase I hear. Listen, if I have one client who tells me they committed a crime and does so in the course of the attorney-client privilege, it doesn't matter if I have a second one. My rules aren't different. The, the rules of professional responsibility establish an attorney-client privilege over confidential communications between a lawyer and client in any work product that I develop in anticipation of litigation as a result of that communication. Uh, it doesn't matter if I have one client or a hundred. It doesn't matter if I call myself a fixer or a lawyer, as long as the client and I understood ourselves to be communicating confidentially and between lawyer and client. So it's more his conduct that is going to get him into trouble. Like, or actually, it's his, if, if he gets in trouble, it's the complicity in criminal behavior. It's not that he knows that the crime took place. It's that he was a party to whatever activity? That's right. Okay. That's right. So. Uh, some of the the legal commentators have been suggesting that one of the ways he gets kind of a pass or gets off is to uh, allege that he was simply a conduit, that is a payment mm. uh, uh, vehicle. Mm. So Trump makes a payment to Daniels, and all the lawyer did was to pass the money on. I have to tell you, I don't think that's a, a good reading of this case. I'm not sure how a lawyer could pretend uh, in a context where it might be bank fraud or tax fraud that they were just a conduit, so they're not uh, responsible. But um, the lawyer has to be a party to waive the privilege. Yes. Do, do you think that's what So we've talked about? You were saying that you don't think that necessarily election, uh, you know, FEC issues would would lead to all of this. I'm saying do you, they, you think it's likely. Do you think it's likely like what would lead to all of this? Do you think it's bank fraud, tax fraud? Is that is that the likely issue at the core of all of this? Yeah, well, I guess there's two ways to answer that. Federal Elections Commission claims have not traditionally been prosecuted as crimes. That doesn't mean they won't be here. And I'll go back to Nick telling me I'm naive. Um, Listen, I don't think a federal judge is going to find probable cause to search the lawyer of the president's office, Mm -hmm. knowing that these are documents that are public. That is the the warrant, uh, the argument for its uh, issuance. These are public things. So it's not like a judge is going to be able to pull off some behind-the-scenes shady, you know, warrant. Um, but uh, it does seem to me that uh, these these documents are, I'm trying to think of the right word here, um, Cohen's going to have to prove, uh, sort of stuck on, on, on how to explain this. Uh, I don't think the judge is likely to be dirty. But I, I don't have as good a feeling about the prosecutors. Maybe that's the best way mm-hmm. to put it. Try not to, yeah. to accuse here. But um, while I trust the judge to be above board, I'm not sure the prosecutors are. Uh, and what they've gotten here worries me a lot. Is that a fair answer? I, I want to be sure I'm answering your question. But I, I, I think part of what's happened here is that people keep saying ugly things about everybody who's involved. And mm-hmm. I think it's possible to see good faith here uh, I, I don't think a federal elections commission thing is going to be a crime. Bank fraud is, mm-hmm. yeah. and that would explain a subpoena. Maybe yeah. that's the best mm-hmm. way to put so, it. What, why would why would Mueller refer this to a different jurisdiction? Right. So this is my understanding is this is now at a state level. Is that is that no. right? So it's it's at the federal 
level in the Southern District of New York. Okay. Uh, Muller refers it because he regards it as outside the scope of his authority to investigate uh, because it is unrelated to Russia in any way. So he has a very broad portfolio relative to Russia. But my understanding is that in this case, the thinking is that whatever Paying crime took, porn star. <laughs> right. yeah, it's it's not, not, utterly not. unrelated to Russia. So uh, if that's the case, then it seems to me it's the right thing to do. Um, why Southern District of New York? Mueller basically can choose where he would like. Uh, he can forum shop here and sure. pick the right Find place somebody. to go. Does anybody think, Phil, so Phil, if you're Michael Cohen in this moment, and you, you're a relatively young guy, he's got, I think, young kids, and he could be looking at some very serious jail time this whole idea that he won't flip on Trump if he has the ability to do so. I mean, this is, I mean, every, I mean, you're reading The Godfather, right? right? I mean, this is, this is eventually what happens, right? Everybody always yeah. flips. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I... That, that. You're saying he's going to end up dead, is that what you're saying? With the fishes. That, I mean, I mean <laughs> the nature, I, I don't know. This is, this is harsh of me, I think, but it seems like Trump has surrounded himself with opportunists, right? People who have a chance, yeah. like, they're not necessarily career politician like the people who who have been drawn to trump seem oftentimes like people who see an opportunity mm -hmm. um and to think that opportunists aren't going to take an opportunity to better themselves <laughs> sure. seems yeah. uh I, you know i'm 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 skeptical there's no way of knowing the thing that i find interesting is that in all of the discussion and people talking to people around trump talking to people around cohen this question of whether he will flip they always respond not by saying there's nothing to flip on or, or Trump is innocent. They all they, they all basically accept the premise that Trump has done something wrong. But Cohen wouldn't actually flip on him. And I, I don't know. I, that, that's like a even a, the president. Even yes. the president's conversation was he's oh, this guy's not going to flip. Well, he needs to be more careful because it implies that there's something to flip on. Uh, I mean, I guess he does say that he may be lying, but uh yeah, this this seems. Uh, I, I think I would be worried if I was Trump. So I have to say, and here, here's the uh, altruist in me: uh, if if Michael Cohen flips on the president, the harm done to the legal profession I think is significant. And it, it's not just that it might be a lawyer who committed a crime; it's not just that it might be a lawyer who committed a crime in concert with the president of the well, <laughs> the, the soon-to-be president of the United States. It's that people who watch the news casually wonder if the attorney-client privilege still sticks. Yeah. They wonder if they can trust their lawyer. Uh, and they wonder if lawyers are bad people. Mm -hmm. And uh, clearly some are. Doctors, there's some doctors, there's some accountants. But uh, the big deal for me is that the profession, in some ways, is at risk here. And I don't know that, Phil, to your point about being an opportunist, I, I, I don't know that that's going to matter to Cohen, but it matters, I think, to a lot of other yeah. people. Uh, so, so I really hope he doesn't flip, if, that, yeah. if, if you could say that. I'd... Well, we've, we've talked a lot about the, the concern that I, I know Bill and I have about Trump is the sort of the erosion of, of norms mm -hmm. and expectations yeah. about how things should work. Yeah. And that, this kind of fits into that pattern, yes, right? If, if you sort of erode the integrity, whether it's the integrity of the FBI or whether yes. it's the integrity of the media or it, it, it's it, it seems to fit into this broader pattern mm -hmm. of eroding trust in our institutions and the mm -hmm. way things work. And yeah. that, yeah, it is disconcerting. It's, it's such a good observation. What's a more central premise to the practice of law? than the attorney-client privilege. Right. It's a thing every American knows. 
and should. Mm -hmm. So if there's less trust in that pillar of, of American legal practice, this is a catastrophe that goes well beyond whether Donald Trump was paying prostitutes or, right. or Michael Cohen was more than a conduit or something like that. Because casual news watchers are going to say, I don't know if I can trust my lawyer or not. How do I know I'm not going to get flipped on? I mean, I They're not going to do the analysis I just did about right. yeah. That's... in concert and all of that. They're just going right. to say a right. lawyer flipped on the president. Yeah. How do I know that my public defender is not going to flip on me? Well, I, I think that's the point. Me saying that you're naive was obviously a joke. No. That's, <laughs> I know that. That's a, I, I mean, it was, you, you made it Be very, nice to the senior legal analyst. Shut up, Bill. <laughs> Tell me how to run my podcast. Um, be gone in two seconds, I swear to God. Um, no, you, you make a really good salient point that is understandable and has process and depth and makes sense and is comforting to people so has, who listen to this stuff but yeah. most so people no place in the modern that's right yeah, it yes. really doesn't but that's the thing regardless of whether or not you do listen to this type of stuff or you don't a lot of people don't have faith in these institutions because yeah. we wouldn't be in this situation if if that was the case i think this is peeling away at that last little yes speck of yeah. respect and um what's the word uh, I, I guess naivete uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. in relation yeah. to American institutions and, and the legal profession, I guess. Well, I, I, I mean, the perception of lawyers in general by most people who are either Trump supporters or who are not fairly well educated is that they're going to take advantage of you. And it's, you know, attorney client privilege isn't necessarily something that is held sacred. It's it's a, a stopgap and a security measure more than it's an institution or a a portion of an institution that you should respect because of what it right. implies to you and what it says about your society. Well, and Trump has a huge megaphone, and he can tweet out, and he can attack, and he can say attorney-client privilege is dead, and it will have more it's of an impact than our podcast will or any right. sort of thoughtful discussions of that. And I think the other thing we've learned from the president is he's less worried about tearing down these norms and institutions. Mm -hmm. He's not as concerned about attacking the FBI, attacking the Department of Justice, or attacking the attorney-client privilege. Like that, it's more about how does this impact him in a short term. And so, yeah, I think this is a, a genuine concern mm -hmm. uh, about the long-term normative impact of this uh, mm -hmm. of his conduct. Mm -hmm. yeah. Agreed. Can I ask one more kind of clarifying question? This is just for my, I, I think for my own, maybe people will find this clarifying as well. Um, well I, I've seen, there's been some discussion in the last few days about Trump pardoning Cohen and whether he could pardon Cohen. And, and I've seen some people, and I would say legal analysts, but I don't know for sure who's actually said this. I just know I've seen this argument. Um, people have made an argument that that wouldn't necessarily protect Cohen because he could face state level charges as well well does that does that mm -hmm. make any sense to you tom does that yeah sound well, i guess i'd say two things the first thing is pardoning him does not mean that he wouldn't testify uh, there's more than one way to motivate a person to testify against somebody else and uh, i don't mean to say that cone is a saint but it might be the case that he sees a book deal or some other sort of reason mm -hmm. to be the one that brought down a presidency this would be mm -hmm. unprecedented so uh, pardoning him doesn't uh, do anything other than as to a federal crime prevent a prosecution. So I guess the second thing I'd say is, yes, it is possible you could find a state violation. Typically, bank fraud, tax fraud, and uh, obviously Federal Elections Commission stuff would be federal crimes. 
Um, but there are state-level financial crimes that one could allege that would not be covered by a presidential pardon, which only apply to federal crimes. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. I, I'm going to just say this to end. Yeah. This had better be serious. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I mean, that is to say, uh, you know, I'm the guy in the room that does not trust government, mm-hmm. <laughs> that thinks there's too much of it, uh, and it would reinforce every bad sense I have of government if for political purposes a warrant has been issued, a lawyer's office has been searched, and a president has been put in this position. Forget whether you like this guy or not. Right. This had better be serious mm-hmm. because it's a very big deal, it seems to me, if it's not. Don't you yeah. think they, at all levels, or at least hope, thought about that? I mean, because this had to go through yes. Rosenstein. This had yes. to go through DOJ. This had to go through a magistrate. Everybody at that level has to appreciate the gravity of Rating the president's attorney. I, I, I'm like I'm you. I'm just wondering hope. if Nick's getting ready to say you're naive now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking he might be. Yeah. The answer I think to that question is yes. So now Nick thinks both of us uh, are naive. Well, because if you come out, if, if they come out, if if, <laughs> if the southern southern district of New York, whoever is, is doing this, comes out with a, an election issue, this is it's yeah. It's, you, it's hard to come back from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I'm with you. I hope. They have the goods, mm-hmm. and yeah. Otherwise, it really is. It's bad for everyone involved, mm-hmm. though. But there would there would have to be a lot of people who would be making a poor decision in order for that to happen, right? Right. It's I mean, a liberal I'm not conspiracy. saying that can't Did you happen. not hear about the liberal conspiracy, Phil? <laughs> right. Right. So I'm not well, saying it can't happen, but there, it, there's a lot of checks in place to prevent a sort of political vendetta or a small thing from from going this far, right? Well, I suppose there are, but but in terms of authority to sign off, uh, uh, listen, we got FISA warrants. We, I'm sure your group has talked mm-hmm. about this on the basis of a dossier that turns out to be fabricated. Uh, I, one would think that shouldn't happen either. But those uh, are terrorists. What? <laughs> <laughs> right, I get that. But it only takes uh, Rosenstein to sign off or Rosenstein to sign off. Um, and a judge to say, I agree. Uh, I mean, at some levels, it's really just two people. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there has to be investigators who put together documents. And I don't want to question the judgment or the, the, the honesty of those two people. But I guess what I'd say is there's not an army of people mm-hmm. that have reviewed this. There's a federal judge and the, and the Department of Justice official who signed off on the request. Ah, could, could, be... could they be dirty? Uh, I who knows? Uh, do you have any sense of time frame before we'll know when would be the next stage that they would actually... I mean, are we talking months, six months before we would see something? Yeah, well, I guess two things. The first is the judge has to decide whether to appoint a special master. A special mm-hmm. master is somebody outside the judicial system and who is regarded as completely neutral as to uh, the claim. It's a fairly routine thing in uh, law. Both sides have offered names. She has not said whether she'll appoint one to review the documents. Uh, and therefore obviously hasn't said which of the names from the sides that she might uh, pick uh, would be preferable to her. Um, but while she thinks about that, uh, the documents are sitting, uh, at, you know, in yeah. a federal office where somebody can see them. I, I understand that uh, the, the authorities have said that they're voluntarily not reviewing all of them. Again, maybe I'll just err in favor of uh, I'm going to believe people. Uh, but but the talk is it could take months to work okay. all the way through all these documents. Am I wrong? I thought I read something that the judge, the, the I can't remember her name. Kimba Wood. She was, didn't she work for Archibald Cox's investigation in Watergate? Wasn't she somehow involved with that? Oh, uh, no, you're thinking of. Is that somebody uh, else? I think of it. Okay. Um, 
I, that's all right. We should, yeah. yeah, we should transition and talk beer. Yeah. <laughs> Phil, you start us out, and then Tom has a beer reveal. <laughs> okay. So uh, the first beer I had tonight was um, Backseat Burner IPA from Otter Creek Brewing Company, which is in Middlebury, Vermont. Ooh. I was not familiar with this brewery or this beer before tonight, um, and I I really liked this. Um, I don't know. I. I, maybe it was just the end of a long day, but it seems like there's this, you know, this so many IPAs out there that they all sort of blend together. Yeah. Um, and for whatever reason, this one was just it was really nice. It was a, it was had a nice flavor, but it wasn't overwhelming. Um, I will I will buy more of these and I, I will let you know whether it holds up the second time you I drink it or out, not. Of, out of Vermont. Out of Vermont. They make Middlebury. good IPAs there. Yep. We've had a few. Yep. yep. <laughs> Shout out to Vermont. All right, Nick, you want to tell us about our first beer? Yeah, we had a, uh, a Tooth and Claw from uh, Off Color Brewing, um, and it's in conjunction with the Field Museum uh, in Chicago. It's a dry hopped lager with a secret ingredient, discovery. Oh. <laughs> Fancy. Um, it was good. It was light, uh, kind of crisp, not overly carbonated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Less of a, we had one prior to this, which we'll talk about too, uh, less of a, uh, a sweetness to it. I, I liked it. I liked it a lot. Yeah, Nick actually. and I warmed up with a Founders uh, Golden Lager, mm-hmm. which was much sweeter than this yeah. and not nearly as good. Yeah, this was a good beer. And, oh, yeah. and it's harder to make good light beers, right? Is that or? Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's less malt in them, so sure. it's arguably less flavor. It's got a big dinosaur it's on it. It's got a big dinosaur yeah. on it. I was happy about that. <laughs> That's why Nick likes it. That's why I liked That's it. Right. That's why I said I wanted it. <laughs> All right, Tom, do you want to All tell right. us? Here comes the beer reveal, my friends. <laughs> uh, this is profoundly Packer-related. Oh. <laughs> I'm reaching into my cooler now for a beer called... Oh, wow. The Double Check. Oh, God. <laughs> D-U-B-B-E-L... C Z E. Right? Des- describe what's on the can. Uh, <laughs> Well, uh, given intellectual property problems, it's somebody with what appears to be a Packer uh, <laughs> uniform, not even the beloved number 12, but number one, but doing the discount double check. A Belgian-style double uh, from Mobcraft. I don't know if any of you know Mobcraft. No. They have a cool approach to brewing. Every month, they ask uh, their mail list to vote on a list of 10 beers, and they brew the top two vote-getters, whatever they are. Hmm. So, uh, discount double check. That's awesome. What do you think of that? That, that is that is a beautiful can. <laughs> That's going on the and wall. And we can drink it, too. It's all good. <laughs> yeah. It's actually pretty good beer, but the name is so good, I could hardly wait to bring this for my fellow this Packer This is great. Fan. This is wonderful. Um, all right, let me pour a little bit here. Oh, this is it's a little... Oh, it's nice. got some good color to mm-hmm. it. Ooh, so, here, I'll let you pour a while. I will, I will introduce uh, speed round topic number one. So... All right, this, I'm excited about this one. So Trump and President Emmanuel Macron from France were in, tan, and in town, and uh, they were holding hands uh, and talking about the Iran nuclear deal. So on Tuesday, President Trump and First Lady hosted uh, the French President Emmanuel Macron and his wife for an opulent state dinner featuring rack of lamb and jambalaya with a nectarine tart for dessert. Mm. Yet what was really on the table was the Iran nuclear deal, which Mr. Macron hopes to persuade Trump not to discard. President Trump reiterated his belief that the nuclear agreement with Iran was terrible, insane, ridiculous. Said he was open to discussing it, though. He also <laughs> stated, that, <laughs> this is my favorite part. He also stated, quote, nobody knows what I'm going to do on the 12th. We'll see if I do what some people expect. Um, <laughs> so, gentlemen, do we think that the budding bromance between Trump and Macron is strong enough to convince Trump not to pull out of the agreement by the May 12th deadline? Philly, what do you think? 
Will Macron save the Iran nuclear deal? <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know. I, you know, when he says nobody knows what I'm going to do, I, I have to feel like the nobody includes Trump himself, right? <laughs> he's not sure what he's going <laughs> to do. Nicely said. Well. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I, you know, we've talked a lot about on this on this podcast about how Trump is susceptible to the latest voice in the room. And, and he seems to have an affinity for Macron from his visit, you know, to France with the, uh, you know, the Bastille Day stuff. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I guess I'm I am uh, a fan of the Iran nuclear deal. So I'm hopeful that there's some influence there. But I, you know, I've sort of given up on the on the notion of predicting <laughs> what Trump is going to do. I, he's he's pretty unpredictable. Can do counterpoint. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you're, I, I think you're absolutely right. He is very uh, susceptible to the last person he speaks to. The last person he has spoken to or has said anything was Macron, who was uh, doing, uh, I think it was a speech to a joint session of Congress about the threat of isolationism uh, and um, trying to prevent uh, overt nationalism, which I don't think is going to sit real well. Mm -hmm. I would almost guarantee that we're going to see some pullback from the deal in the next maybe by the 12th who knows i don't know what date yeah. it could be it's probably well, the 12th though this is i mean if we talk about the last voice that trump talked to this is where bolton comes into play right, right. Who's, who is in a who, who will be in some ways the last voice in trump's ear who is who is openly expressed uh you know opposition to the iran nuclear deal mm. uh, i you know if i had to bet today i would i would say I don't know, two to one, we pull out of it. Mm -hmm. If I'm Emmanuel Macron at this point, I'm not, I'm pitching him, because the problem Trump has with this is not just that it's dealing with a nuclear program, but that it doesn't deal with Iran's other behavior right, in right. Yemen and elsewhere. And mm -hmm. so that's his frustration, is that it's it's too narrowly focused on the nuclear element and not on Iran's other troubling behavior. I agree. Yeah, so if I'm Macron, I'm pitching him on a second deal, a double deal, a better deal, where you can say, Donald, yes, you know, that first one is flawed, but look at this other deal we can develop, and, and then Trump can get credit for that so i hope he's doing that behind the scenes because i think that could be productive both for the united states and iran we, mm -hmm. we will see though i if that doesn't happen i think there's a real good chance that he withdraws from the first one i'm going two to one he doesn't yeah and so yeah. i just take the uh, yeah. well mm -hmm. he wants credibility going to north korea mm -hmm. so if we're going to have this summit if there's really going to be mm -hmm. a conversation and if theoretically there's really a deal but he just pulled out of the last deal the United States entered. That's fair. He's essentially cut his own feet out from under himself. Mm -hmm. So I find myself thinking that the right answer is to figure out a way for him to say, uh, I have preserved this deal. So a supplemental mm -hmm. deal. Mm -hmm. They have to solve this ballistic missile problem, which yeah. is a loophole so big that it makes the agreement almost meaningless. But I, I can't imagine he wants to start with North Korea sitting down at the table and having his opponents say, why bother? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're right. The ballistic missile issue is, is a big deal. I would rather confront that while we've got the nuclear deal on board, right? I mean, it, it sure. one doesn't... If he, if he pulls out of the first one, he still has the ballistic missile problem. Now he's got a potential nuclear enrichment problem as well. So I'm hopeful that he doesn't. I just, I'm just not convinced that he thinks long-term or that John Bolton will think long-term that way. Uh, mm -hmm. I think Mattis does. Yeah, yeah I... I how much has he listened to Mattis at this point? <laughs> yeah. I, it's Bolton is in his ear. Bolton's right. in the White House. Mattis is all the way over the Defense Department. Right. It's it, it's it's a frightening concept. And it's 
considering how much shit he's given um, regarding this deal throughout the campaign and the developments that we've seen in Syria and the region in general and how much influence Iran has had over that to make us look like idiots, which yeah. is his biggest concern more than anything, I I don't know. I cons- Considering what he's been able to pull out of or back away from over the past year and a half, it's... I think there's a really good likelihood that this does not exist in the next few months. So it sounds like we're betting beers. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> because I, I, my feeling is, one thing you could say is, well, I pulled out. Mm-hmm. I'm a tough guy. I did it. Here's another thing you could say. I fixed it. Mm-hmm. I supplemented it. I made it better. I'm a deal maker. Now I'm headed to North Korea, and I'm going to do the same thing there. Mm-hmm. And, and if ego is what drives him, and I think whether in whole or in part that yeah. it is, I could imagine him thinking to himself, better that I say I got two great deals than that I pulled out a one. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a win-win for him. Mm-hmm. There's an interesting argument that's been going around that, that Trump has, you know, we've talked about there, there seems to be lacking a central thread to his foreign policy in some ways. <laughs> but in isolated issues, there's an argument to be made that his foreign policy is working, right? He's been fairly tough on Russia, despite Uh all of the allegations about his ties to Russia. Um, He has been in some ways more decisive in response to Syria. And so I I don't really China's bargaining. Yeah. Yeah. Korea's bargaining. I I don't fully understand why this is happening. I don't (laughs) fully understand what his like what the the common thread is. But, you know, the accusation against Obama was that he sort of thought too much about stuff. And and so there's there's something to be. You know, I, I, it pains me to say positive things about Trump, but there's something that's, you know, he's he's we talk about how he's a reflex machine. And in some ways that can be disastrous in foreign policy, but it might actually be working out in some ways in the short term. Tell me I'm wrong. No, no, no. If he, nope. if, if he were to supplement the Iran nuclear deal uh-huh. and if he were to work out a deal with North Korea. Now, I think the latter is, is much more difficult than everybody thinks. But if he were to do that. Uh-huh. Nobel Peace Prize, right? I mean, this is oh, yeah. this is this is Henry Kissinger <laughs> kind of stuff. Uh-huh. That will, I give it yes, one hundred like zero percent chance that Europeans are going to give. No, I know, but Donald Trump a Nobel it's Peace an Prize. interesting thing, though. I, I mean, realistically, if you look at the the trade tariffs, um, you know, you have regions of the world trying to renegotiate with the United States about mm-hmm. the severity of these. Mm-hmm trade yeah. tariffs and then now there's talk about possibly re-entering the the tpp the trans-pacific partnership which re- was a non-starter up until fairly recently and now there's going to be negotiations on you know what role the united states would play and it wouldn't be quite as centrally based on them and their mm-hmm. economics and it's a more balanced playing field there's I, been a grand total of zero serious conversations with the chinese about intellectual protection intellectual mm-hmm. property protection mm-hmm. uh, now we're going to have one mm-hmm. uh, i i think this all boils down to it takes one to know one mm-hmm. that is we've elected a guy who is sufficiently similar to the people running some of those countries that they recognize in him things they see in themselves mm-hmm. uh, and they respond to those uh, it pains me to say that going yeah. back to the things it pains <laughs> us to say but you know, at the end of the day, if some of these things work out, uh, I'd be happy with the North Korea agreement. Absolutely, irrespective of who yes. did it. And if that I'm happens, not sure all the, I'm not sure there's everybody who, I'm not sure everybody would say that. 
No, no, no one I thinks you're right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. but I think if, if we're going to be that's the state honest. of American politics, yes. right? Yeah, for sure. But we have to. If even if it just things fall his way, mm-hmm. he deserves some credit for this. And sure. wait, North Korea gave up their nuclear weapons, but right. Donald Trump got right. him to do it. No, I hate that. Yeah, <laughs> Let's no. give them back. No, whether it's ISIS or North Korea or China, there have been yeah. a lot of things that have moved in a, a in a potentially better direction. There's still a lot of hurdles, but yes, I, uh, I still think that. Trump winning a Nobel Peace Prize is more likely than North Korea giving up his nuclear <laughs> yes, weapons. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah. The other really interesting, and I don't mean we need to move on, but the way in which Macron and Trump got along, I mean, they were handsy, they were touching, they were holding hands. Uh, and it was really, and I, I'm trying to decide what was going on if if they did find this common connection between the two of them. But this is, he's connected with Macron better than anybody other than maybe uh, Xi Jinping from China, right? I mean, it's it's it was really curious how well and collegial those two were. I, I, yeah, I know we need to move on, but I thought I thought about like I saw clips. I didn't get to watch his whole speech, Macron's speech um, to Congress, but I saw clips of it, and I thought he's playing this really well. Yes. So he he was mm-hmm. critical of fake news, but he was critical of fake news in a way that if you think that Trump is problematic, you applaud. Yeah, and if you think that Trump is right and that fake news are the problem, you applaud. And so he, I think he's. I, I I'm like you, Bill. I can't quite put my finger on whether he clicks with Trump or if he's just playing the game really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, but I think he's doing a good job. But in in another way, I think that also undermines his credibility to some extent. If you yes. say things in yes. a way that everyone agrees with you then mm-hmm. I, I don't i don't know anyway. he's the guy that can rein him in though for the rest i mean that's a brilliant position to be in i yeah. can't imagine you would not want to be in that position right right absolutely okay uh so suzanne chad other super guest just sent me a text uh with a story and she said i hope you're she said if you're podcasting right now bring this up the news coming out of the hill is cohen to plead the fifth in stormy daniels lawsuit <laughs> interesting yes You'll have to tune in next week and we'll break it down. (laughs) All right, let's jump to topic two. And I won't be here. (laughs) So, all right, uh, bipartisan opposition to the travel ban. Today, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments on the constitutionality of President Trump's travel ban. Interestingly, the case has produced a bipartisan coalition urging the court to strike down the ban. This includes former Republican governors and more than 55 former officials from Republican and Democratic administrations, including CIA directors, national intelligence and counterterrorism chiefs, top diplomats, secretaries of state, and some two dozen top-ranked retired admirals, generals, and a former Republican attorney general, uh, and even the Republican chairman of the 9-11 Commission. All are strongly condemning the Trump travel ban as an over-the-line use of presidential power that is counterproductive and antithetical to the American values. Uh, does the bipartisan pushback signal the end of Trump's travel ban, or do and do we think SCOTUS will agree? Tom, where, where are you on all of this? SCOTUS is not going to agree. Okay. <laughs> because the law here is, it seems to me, clear. The president has very broad authority relative to immigration. He had it before we passed a federal statute. That federal statute expanded and reinforced that authority. To say that this exceeds his power uh, seems to me not to pay attention to the law. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the bipartisan opposition is to the propriety of doing what he did Mm -hmm. as opposed to the legality of doing what he did. And I'm inclined to agree with both sides. That is, there's something wrong. This doesn't smell right to me. Uh, But as a legal matter, to say that this isn't within the power he has, I won't bother reading the operative language in the statute. You've probably all seen it. But it is expansive, and it is absolutely 
capturing what's here. Um, it sounds like the oral argument uh, was such that there's, uh, it's always, of course, we say this every month when I'm here, dangerous to predict, but five votes to uphold. Um, and I think it's because the courts are a little worried about uh, putting themselves in the place of the executive branch, which is what I think these federal judges have done. Uh, the, if the law is clear and a federal judge, you know, in Hawaii or New York or pick a state is saying, I know better than the president and I'm going to issue a nationwide injunction to prevent this sort of thing anywhere, I think the Supreme Court's going to be vastly more worried about the judicial branch overreaching than the president. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, the, the stuff that I've seen today following arguments seems to, uh, you know, the, the people who are, you know, court followers seem to be predicting like you're predicting, that the, yeah. the court had lots of challenging questions, but mm -hmm. there's it doesn't appear that there are enough justices on the court to actually strike this down. I, I'm taken back to what we talked about last week when we were talking about the Comey interview and we talked about how Comey was saying that, you know, impeachment, uh, you know, he was asked about impeachment and his answer was that uh, he hopes the president is in, isn't impeached because it, that's the easy way yeah. out. And, mm -hmm. and I'm sort of reminded of that in some ways and that this might be a bad policy. That does not mean that it's unconstitutional or that mm -hmm. it's illegal. Mm -hmm. and, and the requirement right. of people isn't to rely on courts to strike it down. It's to, if you have a problem with this on moral or ethical or policy grounds, then you go out and you run for office or you elect people who, who have a different approach. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that that nuance is something that people oftentimes leave behind this difference between what's constitutional and what's right. They may not be the same thing, right? Amen. And you assume the courts are going to save you when, in fact, maybe the, the democracy should make better choices. Right. Yeah. Right. And should is the right word yeah. there. Not will, not yeah. could, right. not right. may. Should is the right word there. If judges start making these decisions, listen, if you're worried about uh, an expansive executive branch power, I'm more worried about an expansive judicial branch power mm -hmm. because democracy can't cure that apart right. from a constitutional amendment. There's life tenure. These, these common law judgments that federal judges make last uh, uh, theoretically indefinitely. The Supreme Court almost never overrules itself. I'm a lot more worried about federal judges starting to run the country than I am uh, too expansive an executive branch power. Does the fact that they added North Korea and Venezuela to the travel ban to make it non-Muslim countries, does that give him an out? Or could he, if he, if he hadn't made that choice, is it still within his constitutional power to say, I'm going to ban uh, Muslim-majority countries from entering? Would he still, would that still be constitutional? Or yeah, does that there, matter? There, was, there were two interesting exchanges that are worth mentioning on that one. The first is that Justice Alito pointed out that only 8% of the world's Muslims live in the countries mm -hmm. that are subject to the travel ban. And uh, the response from uh, Neil Katyal, who's just this wonderful Supreme Court advocate, was, yeah, but everybody that lives in those countries is Muslim. Mm -hmm. So the question is 8% of the world or 98% of each <laughs> right. country. Yes. Um, the, the second interesting exchange, and then uh, I'll answer your question, was that John Roberts asked, uh, again, uh, Hawaii's lawyer, Katyal, um, would bombing Syria be an establishment clause violation because 98% of the people mm. that live in Syria are Muslim? Mm. And while you might say, well, you know, that's sort of a goofy question to ask, I think what he's trying to tease out is 
if the president's bound by the establishment clause to worry about what percentage of a country's uh, population is any particular identity, whether it's religious, racial, or whatever, what doesn't fall under the establishment clause? Mm -hmm. And there was not a good answer to that question. <laughs> I'd have preferred that the president not add uh, non-Muslim countries to try and dilute what it was he was doing. I'm not, a, I'm not in sure. favor of the travel ban, I'll just say that. But yeah. uh, I would prefer that the Supreme Court rule on the question of, uh, does the president have this authority, not does the president have it now that he added non-Muslim countries. Uh, the last thought I have on this, and I, I don't want to uh, take too much time, but when judges start wondering about a person's state of mind, uh, I, I, this makes me nervous. I mean, that is to say, they think they know what's in the president's heart because of what he said prior to his election. And maybe we do, uh, but I don't know where that ends. And, and when judges start saying, well, you know, Phil said this terrible thing when he was in high school. And, and, that probably and I did. Means, <laughs> and that Damn probably it, means now he thinks this when he's doing that. Oh, I, that's that's a road that mm -hmm. uh, I think yep. we perilously start our, ourselves down. Sure. Mm. Yep. That's interesting. Yeah. Anything else on that, gentlemen? No. All right. So, so yeah. much on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, we well, we can move on to a new lawsuit, uh, the DNC. So the Democratic Party on Friday sued President Trump's presidential campaign, the Russian government, Wiki and WikiLeaks, alleging a broad illegal conspiracy to help Trump win the 2016 election. The multi-million dollar lawsuit filed in the Manhattan federal court says that, quote, in the Trump campaign, Russia was Russia found a willing and active partner in this effort to mount a brazen attack on the American democracy, uh, which included Russian infiltration of the Democratic Party, uh, Democratic Party's computer network. According to the lawsuit, the Trump campaign is, quote, gleefully, gleefully welcomed Russia's help. Tom Perez, uh, chairman of the DNC, said the party suit is, quote, not partisan, it's patriotic. <laughs> and that, quote, if the occupant of the Oval Office won't protect our democracy, Democrats will. Now, this is a bold move by Democrats. But do we see this playing out well or will this come back to haunt them? And, Tom, you were particularly interested in this one. So why don't you start us off? There's a phrase uh, used by lawyers, and it is res ipsa loquitur. The thing speaks for itself. <laughs> and I think much of this does. I think this is going to turn out to be the biggest mistake in legal history. <laughs> That's big. Really? Uh, big. That is, uh, there's no chance they're going to win. Let's, we should just all say that out loud. It's, mm -hmm. it's just not going to happen. Russia is protected by sovereign immunity. Mm -hmm. uh, many of these defendants are judgment-proof. They're alleging multiple millions of dollars in damages without any credible way of proving the damages. But here's what they did. They opened the door to discovery. Yes. Mm. And uh, what I just, uh, I, uh, there's almost nothing I'd rather be than one of the lawyers for one of the defendants who's sending a deposition uh, notice to Hillary Clinton, uh, to Donna <laughs> Brazil. Uh, I mean, there's the, the list of people who are going to get those documents. If, I'm not even sure I'd file a motion to dismiss. I think what I'd say is, I love this lawsuit. <laughs> I can't wait to defend this lawsuit. And here's my first 10 deposition targets. Uh, because they can't say no. Mm -hmm. I mean, just think about this for a minute. What the DNC just did was expose itself to uh, a kind of public discovery process uh, that the Mueller investigation doesn't have, that any FBI investigation doesn't have. Oh, boy. 
whoever, whichever side you're on, uh, I think this was a huge miscalculation. Mm -hmm. Hmm. What's the what's the strategy here? I mean, is this just short term uh, electoral gain that they think they're going to get? I mean, this seems to be getting at the same thing that the Mueller investigation is getting at. This this feels like like uh, you know I. I think of the O.J. Simpson case in which the criminal case failed and they pursued a civil case. This seems like the the you know the the family of Ron Goldman or whatever suing O.J. Simpson before the criminal case is even finished. Right? I don't. I don't, maybe I'm misunderstanding this, but it, mm-hmm. what's the the rush here? It seems like this is actually the the allegations that they're laying out are being investigated. Yes. This is what the Mueller investigation is doing. And not just just Mueller. A congressional committee is doing it as well. Uh, These things are not going uh, uh, unexamined. I keep reading that it's about fundraising, and I don't know if it's directly about fundraising. I'm going to be naive here. Maybe they're not that (laughs) terrible. Hang on. But listen, Mm. I'm just telling you, now it's not going to be hard to find a good defense attorney because they've got to be salivating. Uh, about what this looks like when they get to be the one that deposes Hillary Clinton the, or the yeah. IT guy that built the, the server somewhere <laughs> right, right. because the boundaries around what they've alleged when you throw in uh, Russians, uh, Republicans, campaign strategy. Incidentally, Bannon's not on the list. Conway's not on the list. Uh, there's an odd set of defendants here, but they're all over the board. There's almost no boundaries to what discovery could uh, induce here. Mm-hmm. It just seems unnecessary to me. If, if they're trying to you know, stake their claim to we're the party who supports the actual investigation of mm-hmm. these yes. issues, that, that's not, that doesn't seem up for debate, yeah. right? If you think that mm-hmm. Trump's ties to Russia should be mm-hmm. investigated, you're already voting Democrat. And, and I, don't, I don't see what this, I don't understand what this Gains. The, the one argument I heard is that there's some fear that the Mueller investigation, some of that information would not be made public. Because mm-hmm. Rosenstein, or if he's fired, whoever was to replace him, could sit on that. And that, therefore, this process of discovery would get some of that out. But again, that also seems short-sighted to me, because I think there's no way whatever's coming out of Mueller's <laughs> office doesn't get out, either officially or unofficially. Like, that, right. that's going to that's gonna see the light of day. This feels like Democrats Tight as a sieve right. have, have been people like Jim <laughs> yes. Comey, and, right? So it just, it just seems short-sighted in the sense that, to your point, Phil, this undermines some of the credibility of the Mueller investigation. If you're saying, well, we've right. got to do it, too, because Discovery will get the information out there. No. Mueller and the team, if there is crimes, they're going to be aired. Let that play out. And, mm-hmm. and I don't care. I mean, I know they point to... During Watergate, there was a similar civil suit, and they made, what, $750,000. Well, if the Democratic and the DNC is in that desperate shape where they've got to come up with some ploy to raise funds, that's, that's in this era, that's problematic, too. Right? If, 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 the Mueller, if Mueller issues a report and it, doesn't, it isn't released, then file your suit then. Right. Yes. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. I don't, I, yeah, I don't. It, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I'm not sure from a strategic I, I'm not as clear on the legal stuff, but from a strategic standpoint, I don't see what the Democrats gain by doing this. And their civil attorneys are not going to get anything that Mueller couldn't get. Right. But the defense attorneys are going to get things in a public realm that Mueller wishes wouldn't be there. Yeah. Hmm. Right. I mean, so so they may have shot the investigation in its foot because I'd start subpoenaing the people that I thought talked to Mueller sure. to find out what they said. Mm hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I, I, they're just, none of this makes sense to me. Incidentally, I've remembered. It is the trial judge here that was on Archibald Cox's oh, staff. Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> um, Nick, you were going to say something. I'm sorry. I can't even remember what okay. I was going to say. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I apologize. No, no. I mean, all of this, it just seems like, you know, sometimes, the, in general, Democrats find ways of screwing up a good hand. <laughs> and terrible. you've got, uh, you know, you've got midterms coming up where this should be all good for Democrats. You've got a, a relatively unpopular president. You know, some of the early returns suggest that Democrats could be taking you know, get major gains in both the House and maybe even the Senate, and then you're going to pull a little antic like this. It's just, it's classic Democrat. <laughs> well, it'll be interesting to see the ferocity that they go after uh, Democrats in this potential investigation. If there is a, a at least perceived lack of... Um, balance in yeah. who they're going after I, I, I mean I, I think you're alluding to this anyways it's it's a horrible PR stunt yes. this is just horrible optics if they if they fuck this up and Republicans pursuing discovery can can pursue political issues can so why don't we start with will right so you, you, and oh. why wouldn't they God, this is this is getting worse why, as why, we talk about why it. wouldn't they <laughs> yes listen you know who's number one on my list Donna Brazil yep is it in fact true that you ruined the Bernie Sanders uh, oh. presidential bid? That's right? juicy. And boy, doesn't it feel a little hypocritical to have done that and now worry that somebody ruined yours? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, this is, I'm just telling you, this is going to be it's riotously not, funny. It's not Because necessary. all these depositions are public record. Yeah. On, on this, uh, we've been placing betting odds all <laughs> podcast, right? So the <laughs> odds of the odds of, of Trump winning the Nobel Prize are greater than the odds of of um, <laughs> of North Korea giving up its nuclear weapons, the which are both greater the Demo- than the odds of the DNC winning here. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, is that what you were going to say? <laughs> the odds of the Democrats not screwing this up are even <laughs> even smaller than the odds of oh. uh, Trump winning the, the Nobel I, Prize. I, I know I know yeah, the no, bell no, no, rang, no. but one other thing occurs to me. Tom Perez has gone out of his way to say he consulted with no one in, in the elected Democratic universe. Yes. So Chuck Schumer found out while this was being served. Oof. Right. So I'm thinking the first phone call Chuck Schumer made was, you have got to be kidding mm-hmm. me. Whose side are you on? Right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's incomprehensible. I, it, it's, I, li- I like making major decisions consulting no one. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, that's the only way to do things. <laughs> All right. Moving on to uh, the death of Barbara Bush. So, uh, She's dead. I know I, this. All right. So Barbara Bush died last week at the age of 92 as the wife of the 41st, 41st president. <laughs> Jeez. Discount and, double check. Right. Right. And the mother uh, of the 43rd. Isolate that one. <laughs> so she's the only only the second woman in history to have both a husband and a son serve in the, uh, as president. The other is Abigail Adams. Her funeral was a long, was full of ex-presidents, uh, both Bushes, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, but noticeably, noticeably missing was the current one. Listening to George W. Bush speak about his mother and then watching his father greet all the mourners at the funeral, Wooden couldn't help but be struck by the genuine grace and dignice, uh, decency of the family. In fact, it was impossible not to see, see a huge cavernous divide between all these ex-presidents and the current one. While all were flawed, and I disagreed with many of their policies, I never questioned that each was attempting to do what they thought was in the best interest of the country. Barbara Bush's funeral was a stark reminder of the new era of politics we find ourselves in. 
I fear that even when Trump leaves office, future leaders may replicate his model. Now, the question I have is, am I overreacting? As hanging out with Texas Phil for so long made me overly <laughs> nostalgic for the Bush family. But I, I will did say... Did this come that, right out of your diary? Yes, it did, yes. <laughs> it was it was stunning. The, the way, listening to George W. Bush over the weekend, I, I mean, I just saw a man of decency, and I did not... I, I, again, there was much I disagreed with him, but all of those presidents and some of the some of the images that you saw it hit me you know like a brick in terms of that state of politics versus what we find ourselves in now so i, I don't know where we do we find similar views phil you're from texas <laughs> yeah i mean look so i i mean i i'm going to divert it a little bit i i i grew up in houston and and when i the the man across the street from me was george h w bush's personal secretary and so as a child, I had opportunities to visit. I went, my family went to Washington, D.C. when George H.W. Bush was vice president. And we went to Maine, to Kenny Bunkport. And he, wow. he did not know us from Adam. But his personal secretary, who was like family to him, knew us. He offered to take us yachting. He showed us, like we went to his house. Like every, and I think about Barbara Bush. Um, when I was in like seventh grade, we had a science project and I wrote to the Bushes asking for information on um, the space shuttle on NASA. And they sent us like the owner's manual to the space <laughs> shuttle. I mean, just every time I, I had the chance, the opportunity to interact with the Bushes several times growing up. And they were, regardless of your political beliefs, without a doubt, just wonderful human beings and and um yeah no i i don't think you're wrong like i you know barbara bush you look at barbara bush and whether you d agree or disagree with her political opinions mm -hmm. she was kind she was mm -hmm. um she she felt her convictions strongly but her convictions also changed she changed her mind about people mm -hmm. she seems to be what whether you agree with her political views or not, she seems to be what is great about the American political system. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, it does seem like a whole different era. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I rambled on, but no, yeah, was, I mean, I, it, 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 yeah. I was really, I'm, I'm really sad to see. It feels like the passing of a, of an age. Yeah. Yeah. Tom, I'm going to say uh, two things to Phil. Amen. <laughs> And uh, I believe this is the 71st uh, podcast, and I'm just wondering in this era of disclosing all possible conflicts of interest, whether before you've appeared on the podcast, you've indicated that you yachted with the Bushes. That's a good point. <laughs> I, should, I should make it I mean, clear. These are important issues right now in journalism, my friend. And you might be a journalist. Sean Hannity is. You are. So I want to know if you disclosed your conflicts. I, to be clear. I, and given I back offered, that manual to the space shuttle. I was offered a chance to go yachting. But my dad had a business meeting the next I day, see. and we didn't get to go. All right, but you won your high school science fair on yeah, the basis of the uh, space yeah. shuttle manual. That's true. That's true. No, I'm totally with you, Bill, uh, and with Phil. Uh, yeah, great, great people, and and boy, if we had more people of that level of character, mm -hmm. uh, amen. Uh, go ahead, Nick. No, it's um, it from a in, in institutional perspective and from a higher level political perspective. Yeah, I completely agree. What's interesting now is not only um, the fact that. Trump isn't necessarily part of this kind of momentous event that's taking place, but you also kind of see the the vitriol and just toxicity mm -hmm. of 
people who don't hold the. I, yeah. I it was uh, I think it was a professor in like Fresno, California, or something who said that Barbara Bush was a drunk and she was glad that she was dead and 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 just doubled down on this when people were were mm-hmm. saying that and it's just it's sad when that's the first thing that somebody yeah. goes to mm-hmm. not the fact that it it seems like there's an overwhelming positivity about yeah. Barbara Bush and again regardless of the your political leanings of uh or if you agree with the policies uh of both Bushes as as human beings, uh, presidents. Um, it, it's it just it says a lot about where we are yeah. and yeah, the fact that we're in the political situation that we're in. Yeah. And you'd figure that this would be something that kind of brings people together on a more human level. And it it's not as it's not as coherent a front as I would like it to be right That's now. That's fair. You know, the one <laughs> thing I, I found myself I was actually a little angry with myself. Now I, I disagreed with George W. Bush's decision to go to war in Iraq. And I think mm-hmm. historically that may go down as one of the one of the most devastating foreign policy mm-hmm. decisions. Mm-hmm. And I also found myself, did I fall prey to being angry with that decision, to demonizing him? And I, and I think we all did to some degree, whether it was demonizing George W. Bush or demonizing Barack Obama mm-hmm. or demonizing Bill Clinton, who I think we could say are better people than Donald Trump right now. And I, I just, I think we all cried wolf when we didn't know and now we have the wolf and it's it's sort of stunning to me to think that and I'm, I'm mad at myself for that I, I there's a there's a tendency though so i, I after all the wonderful things i said about yeah. the bushes <laughs> there's a tendency to view this in sort of black and white contrasts mm-hmm. right just because donald trump is worse than george w bush doesn't mean that policies in which he advocated the waterboarding of sure. of people or you know enhanced interrogation that those were good policies sure. right so i mean that we don't it doesn't have to be black and white it doesn't have to be that hey george w bush isn't as bad as trump so i it wasn't right. fair of me to critique him um your critiques of him were totally valid uh mm-hmm. and, and but here's the thing it's the critique of the policy versus the critique of the man and i think with george w bush i found myself falling prey to i'm mad at the policies that guy is a bad guy, right? And, mm-hmm. and he wasn't. And mm-hmm. and I think Barack Obama, the same thing, all these individuals, whereas I, I genuinely think Donald Trump is probably a pretty bad guy. And we should have been more careful about that. Uh, and some of that politics that... But, go ahead. <laughs> but that, that's a, this is this is the problem, though, is that, I, you know, it, what happens, you know, 10 years from now when Adolf Hitler Jr. is president? <laughs> and then you're like, oh, well, I thought Donald Trump was a bad guy, <laughs> but he true. really wasn't. Like, you can't there there's nuance and it's okay to recognize nuance yep. it's okay to to sure. think that people are human and that George W Bush might be a genuinely good person who intends well but makes poor decisions that that are you know in terms mm-hmm. of uh you know that he can be a good person who authorized problematic policies and sure. to say that you know enhanced interrogation or torture is problematic is I don't know. That seems to sure. you know. In, anyway, I I, yeah. I I think there's danger to get into this like black and white. Who's good and who's bad? We're humans and we're flawed, and all of us make poor decisions. <laughs> and and the the pur- purpose is to you know challenge those and to keep people accountable. Mm-hmm. Which Some comes full circle to to Nick's point that it's not just a critique of these people; it's a critique of culture more widely. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, and and our reactions to Trump, to Barbara Bush, to all of these people, that 
that, in, in my judgment, is the thing we ought to be talking more about. It's easy to blame Donald Trump, but Donald Trump gave it was a it reflection was there. of the culture, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, absolutely. That's, mm-hmm. that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, final topic Facebook. Mm-hmm. Apparently, they stole my uh, biometric data. <laughs> <laughs> Not apparently, my friend. <laughs> they did. <laughs> in actuality. Yes. So, Facebook finds itself fighting a class action lawsuit alleging. Its photo scanning technology violates the privacy of millions of users by gathering and storing biometric data without their consent. Facebook is potentially liable for fines under a unique Illinois law of $1,000 to $5,000 each time a person's image is used without permission. A court victory for consumers could lead to new restrictions on Facebook's use of this data, uh, similar to those that have developed in Europe and Canada. Now, Tom, you mentioned that you thought this case was really interesting and had some important privacy dimensions. Why don't you start us off? I'm going to make an argument that the most important thing we've talked about today is this case with a completely straight face. Uh, Cohen, the DNC, uh, yeah, there's going to be a lot of yelling and very little result. This is really important uh, because it raises issues relative to privacy and uh, not just privacy but identity and all sorts of related issues. So just as background. Illinois is one of three states, Texas and Washington are the other two, that have biometric information privacy acts. And what they say is that any identifying information that relates to you as a human physical body is protected and uh, is not to be used without your permission. So when I say as a human body, your iris, your fingerprints, irises, your fingerprints, your DNA, uh, your facial recognition uh, matrix, all of these things in those three states are protected. Facebook, you know, has uh, a a technology. It is better than the FBI's. Statistically, 95% uh, to 85% in terms of its capacity to recognize a person, even with their face partially obscured, uh, that tags people. Uh, It violates the Illinois statute almost certainly. The statute has built-in damages of $1,000 for negligent uh, violations and $5,000 for intentional violations. Facebook's own pleadings say this is likely to be a multi-billion dollar judgment Mm. if they can't find a way to avoid it. And they've not yet been sued in the other two states or in other countries that have comparable laws. Um, So why is it important? Uh, There are millions of cameras around the world that know who you are and everywhere you are. Police are wearing body cameras that uh, have facial recognition capacity. London, the most surveilled city on earth, has hundreds of thousands of cameras in it. It's not just uh, uh, did they find your photograph on Facebook. It's the capacity to build an entire narrative of your life based on where you are, what you're doing. And let me go even further. Stanford scientists used this same sort of AI to make judgments about whether a person was homo or heterosexual. So just seeing your face and using these matrices puts together a picture of you that's vastly more than, boy, I got tagged in a photograph at my summer picnic with my, you know, family or something like that. So as one who thinks privacy is really, really important, uh, I think this case has enormous potential to either monetize our data, put us in a position where we own it, control it, and can buy and sell it, or where we cede that authority to other people. 
so so this one's a big deal for yeah. me. It's it's a it's a quirky, interesting case, but it seems to me it's mm-hmm. one of those threshold privacy cases that really really matters. Mm-hmm. But but Tom, I watched Mark Zuckerberg, and he said, <laughs> "I'm so sorry <laughs> that they don't do anything wrong without our permission." Yeah. Uh. Yes, he did. <laughs> Nick. I- I, I, no, I mean we've we've talked about this ad nauseum over several episodes at this point. I I oh we lost Phil. I'll call him back. So sad. Um, Phil, come back. Um, I, it, Facebook is I I hate Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> Phil. Phil's back. Hi. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry, Nick. We use Skype, by the way. Phil wanted his face taken off of that camera that's right <laughs> yes, now, that's recording right. all of his biometric markers and building a face matrix. He's logging that's up That's what Facebook, he wanted. Yeah. That's exactly right. heard what we were talking about. <laughs> yeah. Cut the feed. Um, oh. I, the, the audacity of them to say that their product isn't people. You don't have a product without people. There is no monetization to your product without people. You would not be one of the most profitable companies in human history if you didn't take all of this data without people's knowledge. Yeah. And the fact that, which is really sad that I, I'm even saying this, that the European Union is now putting legislation in place that is ahead of us in regards to privacy, that you get to opt out of any type of this type, uh, any um, uh, type of... Um, data collection uh, regardless of where it is on the, I'm just stopping that. Yeah. Um, online and we have nothing like that on the books at this point is disgusting I, and I, I really question whether or not we're going to see meaningful legislation that will put them in their place domestically at least I think a lot of other areas around the world are going to start following Europe, or Europe's lead uh, in this situation but um, I, I, I think it's I think there's going to be a lot of pushback because this is entirely too profitable to not let it continue. It was really stunning. So you mentioned that I should look at this, and I started reading about it, and it is, it's scary. You just sort of think, the way I think about Facebook is, oh, I'm putting, like you said, uh, family pictures up there, but the, the reach and the potential connection among all of those, mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't think most people are aware, and I certainly wasn't aware of the way in which that can can profile um phil you got cut out what were you well no i mean i that we talked about this when zuckerberg testified and how it was frustrating to see senators sort of lob these softball questions or asking him about how facebook should be um uh regulated or you know asking him to do the right thing when they have the ability to make laws so the fact that illinois and texas and what was the third state washington so the fact that other states have done this, the U.S. government, I mean, if, if this is an issue of privacy and, and I mean, then then do something about it to mm-hmm. expect that Facebook is not going to take advantage of gaps in laws about this seems, um, you know, naive to come back to a term. So mm-hmm. so, I, you know, I, it's 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 frustrating. It's scary to see the extent of, of the power that they have here. And it's frustrating to see that there's not a willingness to sort of implement laws in places beyond these three states that protect people's rights. My, my question is to you, Tom, do you what way how is do you have a prediction about how this case will go? Like, is, is Facebook well, going to lose yeah. this? 
Uh, let's start by saying it's a San Francisco federal court that certified a class action. Uh, class actions almost never go to trial. They almost mm -hmm. always settle. Uh, that said, because the money on the table is so substantial, uh, uh, lawyers are not going to let this go for, let's just say, an amendment to their privacy policy or mm -hmm. something like that. Um, the trial court judge took on two very difficult questions, the first of which was who's actually aggrieved. So one of the claims Facebook made was you haven't been damaged if all you've been is identified. Hmm. And here's the great answer from the judge. Yes, you have. Because the statute says on its face it's carving out privacy rights for you mm -hmm. that are in and of themselves intrinsically important. So forget whether or not you lost your job because you were tagged somewhere when you should have been at work or something like that. The mere fact that you were identified by Facebook and that your face matrix this is, was stored, uh, that's a damage. Mm. Facebook also alleged, because they store all of this data in Australia, that the geographic location of the server meant that they couldn't be sued in the United States. So and the judge said, well, accounts. that's right. Yes. But, but this matters because the judge said, listen to me, the injury took place here, and I don't care whether the data resided somewhere else. And you might know the Supreme Court had Microsoft in front of it on a, on a similar kind of claim. Um, so do, I think, do I think they, uh, Facebook is going to lose? Yes. So the question is, to what degree they're going to lose? Yeah. Um, they'll settle. They're not going to pay. Uh, listen, it's everybody who has been uh, tagged <laughs> since 2011. Oh, my God. Right. So it's seven years times 5,000 times each violation. Right. It's not just per person. It's per, per violation. Per violation. The company would be gone. It's a crazy number. It, it's, well, Facebook itself says it's many multiples of billions of dollars. Oh. Uh, so uh, is there going to be a settlement? Yes. Is it going to change Facebook's behavior? I hope so. Uh, am I going to line up to be a member of the class? I hope so. <laughs> I, I just don't know if anybody's ever tagged me in a photograph, though. That's my problem. But, but what's important is if the judge says, uh, among other things, for example, you can't hide behind a server being in Australia, or you can't hide behind there isn't actual quantifiable dollar damages if you're tagged, the judge is saying privacy matters irrespective of those sort of things. Mm -hmm. And that's encouraging to me. That's mm -hmm. fascinating. Oh, that's a good a good case to wrap up on. That's and then one. to plug us on Facebook, Nick. <laughs> 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 Facebook. I feel worse and worse doing this every week. Uh, it's just, it's real bad. Oh. But yeah, if you like that discussion about how Facebook is stealing your identity uh, and not paying you for it, uh, share the podcast with everyone. Uh, follow us on Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, Twitter at Barstool Paul, P O L. Uh, beers that we try, you can find on the Untapped app on iOS and Android. You can find the podcast on SoundCloud uh, and iTunes. Uh, review us and like us on si uh, Sound. Wow. Um, iTunes, not SoundCloud. Or SoundCloud, both. Yeah, do it on both. Do it everywhere. Um, yeah, and then you can find the, uh, the podcast on any major uh, podcasting platform. Uh, Stitcher and uh, Google Play Music, uh, Spreaker, um, just Blue, about anywhere. Blueberry, Are we Blue, still on Blueberry. Blue, Blue, blueberry, Blue, <laughs> Blue, Blueberry. Yeah, uh, they're they're on there too. Everybody. Um, yeah, uh, Tom. Thanks again for coming. We really Always appreciate a pleasure. it. Ton of fun. Always a pleasure. Anything else, guys? Nope. All right. We'll see you so. next week. Cheers. Then. Cheers. Thanks.